Let's open our Bibles once again tonight, the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 1. I invite you to turn to 2 Peter 1. And tonight we're going to be covering verses 10 through 15 in our study through this wonderful New Testament book. And tonight we're going to be covering these verses in a lesson that I've entitled, The Blessings of Growth. The Blessings of Growth. As you read through Peter's letters, you can tell that Peter really did have the heart of a pastor. I've been struck once again as I've been uh, teaching through these uh, epistles of Peter um, over these months at the, uh, just the uniqueness of character of the, the men of God that he used to write the New Testament. You know, Paul's a very different character from Peter, a uh, very different style of writing, very different style of thinking. Uh, and to me, that's, that's neat to see how that uh, God used uh, different people and uh, with uh, different perspectives, different gifts, different um, you know, talents and enablings. Uh, but they were all used of God. And uh, I'm glad that we're not all the same. Life would be pretty boring uh, if we were all the same. And if you were all like me, it'd be downright annoying. <clears throat> but uh, I'm, blessed, I'm just blessed to be reading through this again and really seeing the heart of a pastor that Peter had. You know, Jesus commanded Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He said, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And so it was Jesus that appointed Peter as the first pastor of the New Testament church. And, and as you read his letters, you sense that heart. And in this last letter that Peter wrote, he knew that his time to die was coming soon. And we'll see that tonight, especially. I mean, he just, he knew that it was, he didn't have much longer left on, on this earth. And he wanted to use the time that he had left to be a blessing to the believers and specifically to remind them to keep growing in grace and in knowledge by diligently adding to their faith Christ-like character. And the verses before us tonight, verses 10 through 15, we find three blessings that continual spiritual growth will bring in our lives. Notice verse 10. Follow along as I read down through verse 15. Wherefore the rather brethren... Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. As we look at these verses tonight, we find, again, three blessings that come when we are growing spiritually as we ought. We can have the full assurance of salvation when we are growing like we should. We can look forward to a wonderful entrance in heaven without regrets. And number three, we're protected against the spiritual amnesia that verse number nine refers to by a continual remembrance of the truth. 
really, as we go through this lesson tonight, I hope you'll be impressed with this, this idea that we ought to keep growing spiritually, number one, because it glorifies God, but also because it blesses us when we do. So let's notice these blessings together. The first blessing from verse number 10 is the blessing of full assurance, full assurance. Verse 10 commands the believer to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. The idea of giving diligence means to exert oneself, to endeavor to do something. It's the same word that's used uh, back in verse number five when he said, beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith. And the idea is this, that instead of allowing ourselves to become spiritually blind and forgetful, like verse number nine talks about, we need to spare no effort in adding to our faith that godly character of Christ. And as verse 10 commands us, we need to spare no effort making sure of our salvation, giving all diligence to make your calling and election sure. So how can we be sure of our calling and of our election? Now, there are those who teach that the doctrine of election means that God chose certain people to be saved and God chose other people to remain lost. According to this teaching, those who are elect have no choice in their salvation. They are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who then imparts faith to them, which they exercise not by their own free will, but because of God's sovereign decrees. Now, if this were true, if our election and our calling was something that God did to us totally independent of any choice that we ever made, why would it even be necessary for us to make our calling and election sure? Furthermore, how could we if we had no choice in the matter to begin with? If there was no involvement, active involvement on our part in our salvation, if we had literally nothing to do with it, not even the choice to accept Christ, then this verse really doesn't make sense. Peter's instruction only makes sense when you understand that the biblical doctrine of election has nothing to do with who can and cannot have faith. The biblical doctrine of election is this, that God has chosen, i.e. elected, to save only those people who place their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's election according to Scripture. It's not this person can have faith, but that person cannot have faith. But rather, God has said, I will only save those who do have faith. That was God's choice. And by the way, we can only be saved because God made that choice. Because God said, I will save all those who place their faith in Christ. We then can be saved. But don't misunderstand what the Bible teaches here. There are many passages in Scripture that talk about election. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Well, as you're turning there, let me remind you, there's a verse in 1 Peter that Peter talked about election there. And he said that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, since God knew in eternity past who would trust Christ, it could rightly be said then that we were chosen because God knew that we would place our, our faith in Christ. Uh, God knew beforehand that that was going to happen. Therefore, we're counted among the number of those that God has chosen to save. But Ephesians chapter 1, I think, makes it very clear, which interestingly, many people who believe the opposite uh, of what I'm teaching tonight will also point to this passage, and I think they miss some very important details when they do. But notice verse number 11. It says, Ephesians 1.11, whom also we have obtained an inheritance, be, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the uh, counsel of his will. And, and they would stop there and they would say, see there, God predestined certain people to be saved. They had no choice in the matter. Other people he predestined not to be saved. But wait, let's continue reading that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So Paul's very clearly talking to people who trusted in Christ. He goes on to say, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul in, in no way erases the responsibility of the individual to place their faith in Christ by saying, well, you were predestined, you were going to do it anyway, you had no choice in the matter. No, he says the exact opposite. You trusted in Christ, and therefore you are among those that were chosen, that were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, as he would write in Romans chapter 8. So that's what the doctrine of election is. Now let's take it back to what verse number 10 is talking about. How then... Can we be sure of it? How can we be sure that we are saved? Now, I'm just going to use that term uh, to encapsulate the idea of calling and election because they go together. God extends the call. We place our faith in Christ, and God chooses to save us. But how do we know for sure? How can we be confident of that? Well, if you're saved, then there will be definite evidence of that in your life. This is one thing that very is very clear in the New Testament, that if someone has saving faith, there will be evidence of it. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. There's no such thing in the New Testament as a person who's a Christian, but there's no way to know it. There's always going to be evidence of it. James chapter 2 is a passage of Scripture where we find some, 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 passage, some verses actually that give people a hard time because they mistakenly think that, that James is... In, implying that we have to do good works to be saved. But, but look with me at these verses. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Which, by the way, Martin Luther, the reformer, who nailed a, who, who was famous for vandalizing the door of a Catholic church. You know, he nailed up the 95 theses, the 95 problems that he had with the Catholic church. And uh, many credit him with really kicking off the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he hated James chapter 2 so badly that he considered it to be um, extra-biblical, shouldn't be there in the first place. He just couldn't get over what it was teaching and understand it. But James chapter 2 is actually 
if you look at it in the total context, it's not talking about earning our salvation by works. It's talking about demonstrating our salvation by works. Now let's look at just two verses here, verses 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He's not saying that works save. No, he's, he's, he's affirming it's faith that saves. But if it's saving faith, it will show itself. It will be demonstrated by certain good works. So our salvation is not based upon our works, but the demonstration of our salvation is a life filled with good works. Now we're, we're trying to wrap our minds around what Peter said here to make our calling and election sure. So we, we've kind of, we've gotten some basic understandings down now that it's talking about our salvation, that our salvation is not by works, but if we are saved, there will be certain works produced in our life. And so for us individually, personally, our own assurance of salvation is going to be in some ways dependent on our spiritual growth. If we are not adding the Christ-like character traits, if we're not growing, if our life is not filled with good works, then we are in danger of the spiritual blindness and forgetfulness of verse number 9. Look back, 2 Peter 1.9. Remember what he says here, 2 Peter 1.9. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he hath been purged from his old sins. That's referring to our salvation a forgetfulness about even being saved. And so if we're not growing spiritually, then there's a danger that we could even begin to doubt our own salvation. But on the other hand, if we are diligently growing, then we can have assurance. We can make sure of our salvation. The author Warren Wearsby put it this way, it is our progression in the faith that gives us assurance. But let me be quick to say that it, we must not mistake our efforts as producing the assurance. I know I'm saved because I do this, this, and this. Sadly, I meet people all the time as we're out soul winning and uh, witnessing to people. We ask them how you're saved. Oh yeah, I'm saved. Well, how do you know you're saved? Well, I go to church. That doesn't mean you're saved. I mean, going to church is good, but that doesn't save you. Well, I, I, I've, tried my, I've tried to be a good person all my life. I know, I know I'm saved. But that doesn't save you. And so I'm not saying tonight that we, through our own good works, save ourselves, nor do, I, do we produce our own assurance of salvation through our good works. It's not dependent on us, but rather it is the Holy Spirit that works in us as we submit to him to give us the peace and confidence that we are indeed saved. So it's not about, well, I need to prove that I'm saved by doing, doing this, 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 and this. It's about simply submitting to the Holy Spirit and doing what God wants you to do. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit gives you that peace and that confidence. He removes the doubts and he replaces it with the peace. 
Romans 8.15 says, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as it, co- as it relates to assurance of salvation, is like any other ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can hinder His working in our life, even in this area of assurance. And so if there is sin in our life, we're not growing, we're spiritually immature, then we're not going to be reaping the full benefit of that part of the Holy Spirit's ministry. We're going to be spiritually blinded. We're going to even get to the point where we are forgetful about our own salvation. When we're spiritually immature, when we're disobedient to God's commands, we invite that spiritual blindness that can cause us to doubt our salvation. Here's the principle, to put it simply, disobedience leads to doubt. Obedience leads to assurance. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 3, which First John is a great book for someone who's struggling with assurance of their salvation to read through that book because he talks a lot in there about how do you know for sure that you're saved? Well, he says this in verse 3 of chapter 2, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Not that keeping the commandments saves us, but keeping the commandments is one way what that leads to is one of the primary ways that leads to assurance. So when we diligently add to our faith Christ-like character and are sure of our salvation, the last part of verse 10 tells us that if we do that, that we'll never fall. It protects us against backsliding away from the Lord. For if you do these things, you make your calling and election sure. You're adding to your, your faith all of these character traits of Christ. Then you'll never fall. Now let's talk about that for a minute. Does this mean that you will never make a mistake? Does this mean that you're going to achieve perfection, sinless perfection? There are some people who teach that you can. They teach that you can get to the point in your Christian life where you never sin. That was curious to me, and as I've studied that out, what I found out is the only way they can say that with a straight face is they literally redefine sin. They, they, say, they say sin is only when you intentionally do something that you know you shouldn't do. Well, even by that standard, there is no point in your life where you are going to be perfect and will never sin, even by that standard. Which, by the way, sin is sin, whether it was obstinate, stubborn, and willful, or even if it was done in ignorance, it's still sin. You're never going to get to the point in this life that you're perfect and sinless. So is this verse saying, though, that that you can do that? If not, what does it mean that we'll never fall? Well, the idea here is that, I mean, it's really simple when you think of it this way. As long as I am progressing in Christ's likeness, I'm never going to be going in the other direction. As long as I'm moving up, I'm not going to be moving down. If I'm moving down, if I'm falling, it's because I failed to keep progressing, you see. So it's not a guarantee that you will never make a mistake, but it's a guarantee that when you are 
adding to your faith and you are diligently making sure of your calling, that as you do that, that protects you from backsliding. Proverbs 24, 16, for the just man, I like this verse, it says the just man falleth. Just right there, I'm, I'm already encouraged. Because <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. The just man falleth seven times and riseth again. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. See, that, that's what distinguishes someone who is a mature Christian versus an immature Christian. A mature Christian makes a mistake and quickly they recover from it. An immature Christian makes a mistake and they're devastated indefinitely. So as we grow and we receive the assurance of salvation, with that comes the protection from backsliding. Just to recap, our diligent effort here does not save us and it doesn't keep us saved. But obeying God and growing in grace and knowledge and can, we continue, when we do that, we continue to move toward Christ's likeness. And the Holy Spirit's ministry of assurance is unhindered in our lives so that we remain sure of our salvation. That's a blessing, to know for sure that you're saved. Often when we are witnessing to people, we will ask them a question something like this, are you 100% sure that you're saved? And I would say the vast majority of the time, the answer that I have heard is, well, I think so. Now I, but I asked, are you 100% sure? Very few people that I meet are willing to say, yes, I'm 100% sure. But you know, that's what God wants us to be able to say. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Not that you might hope or guess or wish, but that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us to be sure. But if we're not growing, if we're not adding to our faith and making sure of our salvation by doing the things that we ought to do, then, then we're going to struggle with that. And listen, if Satan can get you to question your very salvation, he knows he's got you right there. You're not going to go any farther than that. If you can't even get that settled, he knows he's, he doesn't have to worry. Make sure of your salvation. Listen, if you struggle with doubts, I, and I can be any help to you, I'd love to. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's go through Scripture and find out. A lot of people that I meet that struggle with doubts, I, I think it's, it's, it's literally what is going on in 1 Peter 1. It's simply just a lack of growth, a lack of knowledge, and it's just a matter of some discipleship, learning some things and getting some things settled. But then there are people who fall into verse number nine. They're, they're, they don't have assurance of salvation. They are saved, but there's sin in their life, and that's what's causing it. And then, of course, it's always a possibility that if you don't know for sure you're saved, it's because you're not, because you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit working in your life, convicting you, and you need to place your faith in Christ. But by all means, make your calling and election sure. Number two, second blessing of growth is a wonderful entrance. 
Verse 11 of 2 Peter 1, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does this verse teach that whether we get into heaven or not is based on how diligently we work? Again, verse 10, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Verse 11, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Is that what it's saying? That our diligent effort is what gets us into heaven. If you're kind of scratching your head thinking, what does verse 11 mean? Good, because I did too. The wording is challenging to be sure, but let's take a moment and think it through. And we find that the, the meaning actually comes pretty clear. First of all, notice that it says here, an entrance shall be ministered unto you. So whatever this entrance is, is something that is done to us and done for us, not something that is we do for ourselves. The entrance shall be ministered unto us. Now, what is this entrance into? Well, the verse answered that question, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And just to simplify it, we'll say into heaven. Our entrance into heaven is something done for us, done to us. It's not something we do for ourselves. Our entrance into heaven was made possible by Jesus Christ, not our own efforts. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. He did all the work. So that's the first thing to understand as we, as we take this verse apart to understand it. Secondly, the use of the phrase here, the everlasting kingdom, really paints a picture that reminds us of the ultimate reward that we will receive and the reward that it will be to be in heaven. 2 Peter, 2 Timothy rather, chapter 2, verse 12, Paul talked about how that we were going to reign with him. We're going to take part in the kingdom of Christ in eternity. And, and Peter's reminding us of that, that that everlasting kingdom of Christ, our entrance into that is ministered to us. But then number three, what this verse is discussing is what kind of entrance we will have, not if we will have an entrance. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. And that word is really the focus here. Because the truth is, all those who are saved will go to heaven. And I'm so thankful for that. That's a guarantee. But not all who are saved will have the same entrance. The same kind of entrance. One, one uh, writer that I read said that... Uh, the phrase that is used here to talk about an abundant entrance in the original language was used of winners of the Olympic Games when they would go back to their hometowns. They would go back home and, and everybody would celebrate their return because they had won the games. And I thought about, you know, in our modern day, if a team, uh, let's say, you know, wins the Super Bowl, um, when they come back home, that city a lot of times is going to throw a parade for them, right? He's going to have this big celebration. The team won, whether it's Super Bowl or, uh, you know, NBA championship or World Series or anything like that. I don't know. Do they throw parades for golfers who win? I'm not a golfer. I don't know. But they do it in a lot of different sports. And that's the idea here. 
it's it's the kind of reception that they that they receive. It's it's a celebration. Here comes the victor. Here comes the winner. Let's 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 have a parade and let's throw paper everywhere and you know make noise and let's just have a fun time. That's what this is talking about. And so he says that when we are growing, when we are adding, when we are making our calling and election sure, that that an abundant entrance will be ministered unto us into the everlasting kingdom. So it's talking about the kind of entrance, not whether we will have an entrance. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's another passage that I think helps us understand what Peter's talking about here. I mean, isn't heaven going to be wonderful for everybody? Well, certainly it is. Heaven's going to be eternally wonderful, full of eternal joy for all those who are saved. But there's an aspect of eternity that sometimes we overlook. And that is the judgment that we will face at the beginning of eternity. For the believer, that is the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible's clear, some will be rewarded and some will suffer the loss of reward. Now, this is not punishment for sin. This is reward for service. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 down through verse 15. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So what this is talking about is at the judgment seat of Christ, your life will be judged based on your works of service after salvation. Whether or not you live for Christ or whether or not you live for yourself. If you live for Christ and your works are tried, and the image is given here of different kinds of works being different kinds of material. Works done for Christ, that's gold, silver, precious stone. You can put those in the fire and they come out better for it. Works done for self, that's wood, hay, and stubble. You throw them in the fire, they're gone. They burnt up, nothing left but ash. So your works are tried, and if anything remains, that gold, silver, precious stone kind of work, well, that's your reward. But if nothing remains, you've lost out on your reward. And so what Peter is pointing to here is, is, is this truth, that while all Christians will go to heaven, not all Christians will have the same entrance into heaven. Some will be rewarded, some will suffer the loss of reward. The word translated shall be ministered here is the same that's translated add back in 2 Peter 1.5. We're commanded to add to our faith. And if we do that, then these rewards and this abundant entrance will be added to us. If we diligently add to our faith the character of Christ, then we not only have assurance of salvation, but we have this happy entrance into heaven. So this verse is talking about how it's going to be for us when we get there. Mature, fruitful Christians can look forward to a wonderful entrance and not losing out on their rewards. 
Let me read to you how one commentator summarized this. Those who are diligent in the work of religion shall have a triumphant entrance into glory, while those few who get to heaven, some, while of those few who get to heaven, some are scarcely saved, 1 Peter 4.18, with a great deal of difficulty, even as by fire, 1 Corinthians 3.15, those who are growing in grace and abounding in the work of the Lord shall have an abundant entrance into the joy of their Lord, even that everlasting kingdom where Christ reigns, and they shall reign with him forever and ever. It's really a reminder of the rewards that await us when we live for Christ. And there's nothing wrong with looking forward to the rewards that God has promised. In the adult Sunday school class uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul's words in 2 Timothy, and he talked about the, the reward that awaited him. Paul looked forward to his rewards. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself promised, the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. It should be the goal of every Christian to receive the reward that God has promised for faithful service. To be able to hear like the master said to the servant in the parable Jesus told, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When we are growing as we should, we have the blessing of a wonderful entrance. And then finally, number three, when we are growing in Christ, growing in grace, then we are blessed with a continual remembrance. A continual remembrance. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 12, Peter says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Verse 13, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Verse number 15, Moreover I will endeavor that you may be after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Three times he emphasizes remember, remember, remember. Because Peter wanted the believers to be growing fruitful Christians, he didn't neglect to remind them of the truth that they already knew, which he acknowledged that in verse 12. Though ye know them and be established in the present truth. It's like he's saying, I know you know this stuff, but you need to be reminded of it. And again, I see in that the heart of a pastor. A lot of a pastor's job is to say the same kind of thing a lot. I know that. And listen, I, I, I try to take that into account every time I, I prepare to preach that for most people that I'm preaching to, what I'm saying is not the first time that they've ever heard it. You might think, well, why do you keep repeating yourself? Well, part of the reason is, I forget, no. Part of the reason is because of passages like this where Peter said, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to keep it, I'm going to stir you up by way of, way of remembrance. You need to be reminded of this. Repetition and reinforcement are keys to learning. We need to be reminded of things frequently because we have a tendency to forget. They say as you get older, two things have a tendency to go. The first is your memory. And I don't remember what the second one is. Right? We all have a tendency to forget, especially when it comes to spiritual truth, because we have this nasty flesh that likes to distract us and keep us from remembering it we need to be reminded of things frequently 
one of the jobs of a pastor, again, is to remind people of the truth of God's word. First Timothy 4, 6, Paul told Timothy, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. In verse 13, Peter went so far as to say that as long as he was alive, he would encourage them to remember the truth. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, he said, it is meet, it is suitable, it is proper to stir you up by putting you in, in remembrance. But their faith could not be dependent on him. They had to get to the point where they could remember even without him because he wasn't always going to be there. He knew that, verse 14 Shortly, he said, I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. In John 21, Jesus told Peter that one day he would die as a martyr. It had been many years, best as we can tell, close to 30 years since that day when Peter sat down to write this letter. So I think he knew that his time had to be short. He knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. And he knew that their faith could not depend on him. They had to be able to stand for the truth without him. And so he wanted to remind them now over and over again and continue to endeavor, verse number 15, that at, so that after his decease, after he died, after he was gone, they would still have these things always in remembrance. And here's the thing. One of the hallmarks, one of the key characteristics of Christian maturity is the ability to stand firm on the truth on your own. Immature Christians are dependent on other people for their stability. If the crowd they're around changes where they're going, their direction and their beliefs, well, they'll just go right along with them. But a mature Christian can stand on their own. And regardless of what anybody else is saying or doing, they can hold to the truth. Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. It's talking about spiritual growth to maturity. Measuring up to Christ. Christ likeness. That's the goal. Verse 14 That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Children, spiritually. Paul says if you are tossed to and fro, if you're carried about by the wind of doctrine, if you're just following the trends, if you're just going with the flow, if you're just believing it because everybody else believes it, you are an immature Christian. A mature Christian is not tossed to and fro and not carried about with every wind of doctrine. One of the blessings of, of, of growth spiritually is the continual remembrance that you get to the point where you're not dependent on someone else for your faith. You can stand on your own by the grace of God. Paul used the expression established in the faith to describe this same idea. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, Colossians 2.7. We need to become firm and settled in the truth of the Word of God. Let me say to our, our young people, especially here tonight, you know, you're learning, you're at a point in your life where, uh, you know, you've got a lot to learn. 
about God and about a lot of other things. And one of the things we want to do for you is to encourage you to get to the point where you can stand on your own in your faith, not have to depend on mom or dad, not have to depend on other people in your life. Because if, if you can't stand on your own, you're not going to stand very long. There's going to come a point where you're going to have to make the choice because there's not going to be somebody there making you do it. You're going to have to choose, will I or won't I? You need to get rooted and established in Christ. Become firm and settled in the truth of the Word of God. Well, some would say that's pretty dogmatic and closed-minded, isn't it? To say, nope, I know what I believe. God says it, I believe it. That's that's not very open-minded of you. Let me just say, I believe we ought to be closed-minded to lies. I think we should be dogmatic about the truth. And I think we should be as narrow-minded as God is. And a blessing of spiritual growth is that you become a mature Christian who remembers what is true and believes what is true no matter the opposition or temptation. So we kind of review where we've come to this point in 2 Peter. We've learned that growing in grace means adding to our life this godly character of Christ. And it results in a fruitful life that glorifies God. But as we see tonight, it also blesses us in many ways. When we're growing, we have a full assurance of our salvation. When we're growing, we can look forward to a wonderful entrance. When we're growing, we are blessed with a continual remembrance of the truth. So it is good for us then to keep growing because it glorifies God and it blesses us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that everything that you tell us is not just for your glory, but it's also for our good. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in those times where we just get spiritually tired and we're tempted to think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to keep doing what is right? Is it really worth it to keep going to church, reading our Bible, praying, being a witness, being kind and loving and merciful and trying to do what your will is for us? Lord, encourage us that it is worth it. Not only because it glorifies you, but because it blesses us. And thank you, Lord, for the promise of heaven that we get to look forward to. In Jesus' name I pray.